As was mentioned previously, at the outset of the announcements, we are, in fact, thankful, I'm sure, each of us to be able to assemble and together this evening. I know that many have made comments about how that certainly the day has afforded so many blessings in a number of ways, and certainly one of them is the opportunity to assemble this evening. It is good for all of us to have that opportunity, and certainly as the first day of the week, we look forward to these when God has presented them to us. And as you may have noted in the bulletin, also on the wall to my left, tonight, at least for this portion of our service, I would invite us to think at least for a few moments about a study of fasting. As we give some thought to that, I suspect that these introductory comments will not in any sense be unexpected. After all, as we appreciate everyone who loves the Lord, takes very seriously every single commandment that the Master has made. And He did say, didn't He, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. As we think about the array of commandments and the array of considerations that the Master has left for us, certainly one of the things that comes to mind from time to time is the very matter of fasting. It's fair to say that over the centuries, mankind has done some serious disservice to many of the commandments that Jesus has given. After all, we understand from His statements themselves that it's proper and right to observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. But yet we know that there are those in our modern day that observe it once a year, once every six months, once every three months as the case may be. But you and I realize that to take what Jesus has taught seriously means we do things exactly in the way that He Himself has delivered it. With regard to baptism, oh, how serious man has mistaken and misapplied and mistaught that very powerful and very needful matter. You and I realize that it is a critical thing that allows contact to the blood of Jesus, but many do not think so. Shamefully, of course, they've reached such conclusion. You and I, of course, could appreciate that many of those same things, at least in some way, could be said about the matter of fasting. What does the Bible teach about it? Is it something that we should give serious consideration to today? And if so, in what way? What does the Bible have to say about it? As you can see at the bottom, fasting will be our subject for this evening. And I thought some introductory remarks might be in order as we more carefully focus our attention on the subject of fasting. First of all, you'll notice that it is true, I suspect, that for most of us, fasting isn't something we think about that often. When we encounter it in the Bible, perhaps we give some consideration to it. But after all, we live in an age, certainly here in this country, when food is rather prevalent, isn't it? Grocery stores, we can easily approach to them and purchase any number of items. Restaurants, we pass by the score as we go to work or other places, easily enough able, it seems, to make our approach to food and, of course, to have access to it. We thus think more about partaking of it than not partaking of it. You'll notice, though, with regard to fasting, that when we come to the Scriptures, it does seem to be a rather frequent topic. Specifically, I would invite you to notice that at least 74 times it is mentioned in the Bible by that very name. Of those 74, over 30 of them are in the New Testament. Thus, you'll appreciate that shortly somewhat less than half of them are found actually in that set of books, Matthew through Revelation. When you think with me about that aspect of fasting, 
It certainly is clear that it's a topic that appears rather frequently, much more, in fact, than some other topics with which you and I might be much more familiar. I've listed just three, but isn't it interesting that the collection, something that we greatly respect on the Lord's Day, to give as we've been prospered, to do so in a cheerful fashion, and yet fasting is mentioned much more in the Bible than that. Consider also the matter of the Lord's Supper, something we lift so high and we cherish the opportunity to partake of these emblems that represent the blood and the body of Jesus. And yet fasting is mentioned much more in the New Testament than is the Lord's Supper, at least by that name. You'll also notice that even that act of confession, which is a part of the gospel plan of salvation, fasting is mentioned much, much more than that is. Suffice it to say, it seems, that given that fasting is mentioned so much, we should do ourselves well to ask, what does the Bible say about it? Beyond that, consider this in terms of a definition. Some might ask, well, can we be clear as to what these words, when they occur in the Bible, do in fact mean? Fasting means to abstain as a religious exercise from food and drink. And immediately, one comment I thought worthwhile to observe at this very moment. Fasting, you notice, is not merely doing without food. You'll notice there's a religious aspect to it. There's a spiritual exercise involved in it. I suppose anybody that wishes to think about dieting might choose to withhold from themselves some element in food, but that's not the same thing. Fasting, as you can tell, leads us also to note this. I thought the example of Anna would be appropriate in Luke 2, verse 37. There in the early days of the New Testament, we recall that Anna, she labored in service to God. But the text is very interesting in that it says, while she remained at the temple, she served God in both prayers and fastings. You'll notice that fasting was a part of the service that she rendered. She fasted. It was an absolute element. It was a portion, a role that had play in what she did in terms of her service unto God. As you can see, even beyond that, as we noted earlier, many of those elements that are mentioned in terms of fasting occurred both in the Old and the New, in the, in, in the New Testament. Specifically, you'll notice that some of the intervals varied. We encounter fasts for 40 days, there were some that fasted for part of one day. There were others that fasted for three days. And so we noticed as far as the duration, that was not something that God, in fact, previously had fixed. It seems as though that was left to a choice in many instances on the part of the individual who was choosing to engage in that fasting. The very bottom set of questions then might be these. What does the Bible say for our age today about fasting? Should a Christian today fast? If so, on what occasion and when? And how should the fasting be done? I think we can devote a few moments and actually at least speak to all of those matters over the remaining moments of our lesson this evening. To do so, first of all, it seems fair to consider this. What about the fasting of today? Jesus had, again, many things to say about that. And I would invite you to consider with me at least a handful of the passages. In Mark 2, verse number 18, there was an occasion in which 
the actual disciples of both John and the Pharisees posed Jesus with a question. They made this observation. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, but thy disciples fast not. You'll notice that they made an observation. It was common knowledge and easy understanding that here were individuals, the disciples of John the Baptist, as well as the Pharisees, and they were accustomed to fasting. But on that occasion, these same individuals, as they questioned Jesus about this, they wanted to know why His disciples on that occasion didn't fast. The Lord was quick to reply. He said, While the children of the bridegroom is here, they are not able to fast, but when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will fast. That's, of course, in the very next verse, Mark 2, verse 19. Jesus was very quick to say that while He was then here referring to Himself as the bridegroom, there was not that reason within them for fasting. There was not that specific occurrence relative to the need and the expression of their life in fasting. But didn't He also say that after the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will be given to fasting? That perhaps leads us to observe some additional matters. In the text before us, the one that Ted read in our hearing just a moment ago, might I invite you to think with me back to Matthew chapter 6 as we look again at two of the references that occur in that set of verses. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Moreover, Jesus said, when ye fast... Be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. It is still interesting, even before we go any further, to notice Jesus said, moreover, when you fast. He didn't say, if you fast. He did say, when. The Lord operated on the assumption His disciples would, in fact, be given on at least some occasions to fasting. But you'll notice that, look at the very next verse. Verse 17 of Matthew chapter 6, But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face. Jesus again used that word when, didn't He? He said, when you fast. And He made clear to them, as we'll discuss a bit later, the characteristic of the appearance of fasting. But at least on these two occasions, the Lord, in fact, said, when you fast. And He chose to then regulate what was said and to be done about their appearance and the other things that they often did that were improper about it. When you give thought to the nature of when instead of if, maybe that leads us to a few additional references that's also found in the pages of the New Testament. Jesus, our Savior, fasted for some 40 days, as is recorded in both Matthew and Mark. We remember on these occasions when Jesus fasted, that was right before that event of the temptation, when the tempter came to Him and on those three rather compelling times tempted Jesus to do these three things. But in every instance, the Lord, in fact, became victorious over the temptation. But for 40 days, He had engaged in a fasting. Beyond that, you'll notice the example of the Antioch church in Acts 13. You might recall that was the very outset of that occasion when the missionary journeys took place. Here was a congregation of people who considered themselves as a powerful work was ready to begin. 
They laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off on the missionary journey. But prior to doing that, they fasted. They made an especial dedication of their service to the God of heaven and fasting was a part in it. You'll notice even beyond the Antioch church, there's the example of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 27. That is occurring in a particular listing of rather well-known difficulties that Paul faced in life. You and I have often reflected on just what a noble servant Paul was. He mentioned the beatings he'd endured. He mentioned the shipwrecks that he had suffered. He mentioned various other perils and difficulties he faced. But isn't it interesting that in amongst that list, he said, I've been hungry day and night. But beyond that, he said, often I have been in fastings. Paul even noted that in the New Testament era, he himself had made choices and had been given to fastings apparently on several occasions. All of this perhaps leads us to see that at the very bottom of that slide, it would seem entirely fair to say that at least fasting should be something you and I could consider. And if any person were to choose to do so, we would not be in any position to condemn them for making a choice to fast. Notice how many New Testament examples they would have in order to encourage them along that line. Paul, we notice the church at Antioch. We notice these other instances in which Jesus made statements about when one would choose to fast. As you think about the nature of fasting, at least from what we've studied so far, the next questions would then be, well, on what occasion should you or I fast if we have an interest in doing so? As we've already learned this evening, it's not merely as some physical impediment to something. It really is much more carefully identified than that. As far as why, why should we fast? May we be quick to say again that the initial statement made in the sacred text has to do with spiritual reasoning, a spiritual thrust. Let's in fact devote several passages of Scripture as we look at the way in which fasting is presented in that way. First of all, we might again say, just as a highlight to a comment that I made earlier, fasting is not merely to lose weight, and it's not merely for some kind of social characteristic. Fasting, you see, is much richer, much deeper, much more with spiritual intent and thrust than that. So much so that look at a few of these statements. First, one from the Old Testament. We recall that there were a number of references to fasting, and quite often it was described by the phrase, afflict your souls. That's exactly the way, for instance, it was described on the Day of Atonement. There in Leviticus chapter 16, on that Day of Atonement, many times in the chapter, the people were told it would be a day in which their soul would be afflicted. But we learn that later in the Old Testament, that phrase is stated in a very interesting fashion to in those contexts to mean fasting. Look at Zechariah 8 verse 19 with me just for a moment. In this later Old Testament book, it is rather fascinating that four different special fasts were mentioned over the course of the year for the children of Israel. They were in various months and the children of Israel were thus in the appreciation that there were these well-respected and well-known occasions during the year of fasting. 
Spiritual identification, absolutely. The very context of Zechariah 8 points that out in such clarity. But even beyond Zechariah the 8th chapter, let us look at some of the other occasions, both Old and New Testament, in which fasting took place. I thought we'd begin in 2 Samuel 1 verse 12. There David, as well as several of the members of his kingly court, also engaged in something very similar. They, they fasted. What was the occasion then? It was that circumstance in which Saul and Jonathan had been killed. Here was the one who had been the king of Israel, Saul, and his son, who was the very close friend of David, upon their demise, upon the fact they were there killed at Mount Gilboa. When David learned of that news and when his other officers, those that were his companions, learned of it, it says they fasted until even. They fasted. It was a sign of the great grief that had overcome them. The context informs us that they were greatly agitated and bothered by the loss of this one. Although we wouldn't always lift high what Saul had chosen to do, David respected him as the holder of the king of Israel. And in so doing, David fasted. You'll notice beyond that in Esther 4 verse 3, perhaps the most famous of the fasts of the middle section, at least of the Old Testament, we recall that the children of Israel, Haman had schemed a plan whereby all of them would be put to death on the 13th day of the 12th month of that particular year. And when Mordecai and the other Jews learned of this hateful and terrible sentence... Finally, Mordecai said to Esther, who had become queen by this point, you must go into the king, and you must, in fact, make petition for our life. Esther was quick to say, but he hasn't called me. And in fact, in that day and time in the Persian court, you didn't approach to the king unless he had invited you. Finally, Esther said, I shall go, and if I die, I die. But prior to that, she said, for three days, neither eat nor drink, but fast, so that all may work well. This was a period, wasn't it? This fast of beseeching the blessing of God. It was a period of beseeching the goodness that all of this might play out in a productive fashion and that God's people would be spared and that the king would dip the scepter to Esther and she would, in fact, be welcomed. All of that did eventually happen, didn't it? You'll notice beyond that, we see that there were examples of fasting as it related to penitence. When an individual was overcome with sin and he or she realized it, many times we find fasting in light of what they then did in terms of their repentance and their open service unto God. Look at a few of these examples. In Ezra 8 verse 21, on that occasion... We remember that the people had intermarried. They had, in fact, did exactly what God told them not to do back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And when Ezra finally came and he realized this, his heart was broken. He knew that something serious had to be done. And so in that chapter and the one that followed, we learned that one of the things that Ezra encouraged was the characteristic associated with the very nature of penitence. That's in the, the part related to humility in the next to the last part on that slide. As you can see beyond that in Psalm 35, 13 as well as Psalm 69, another matter in humility is encouraged upon each of us. 
As we mentioned penitence earlier, only of those set, maybe the last one is the most immediate one. In Jonah chapter 3, the people, we remember that Jonah had been commissioned to go and preach to Nineveh. At first he didn't do so, but then after spending some time in the belly of a great fish, he changed his mind. And after, in fact, he went. We remember in chapter 3, when he finally did come to Nineveh, he did cry against it. And they responded with belief. And it says they fasted as they appreciated the seriousness of their sin and God's claim that they would be destroyed. They repented. And in so doing, they fasted. As you give thought to all of that, maybe the very last one, there seem to be some special references to fasts as it was a part of calling upon God, beseeching His aid, and earnestly desiring His assistance and His help. Deuteronomy 9 verse 9 and 2 Chronicles 20 beginning in verse 3 both highlight those particular points. Those Old Testament ones maybe just beg us to consider the New Testament as well. Because look at some of these. Those occasions we've mentioned in the New Testament so far. We can in fact revisit some of them, but notice these additional ones. First of all, the very initial one on the slide. There seem to be some occasions of distressing character when also fasting seems to be listed. There is that example in Matthew 4 again of where Jesus Himself was tempted. But you'll notice that the order there seems to be slightly different. The other one in 1 Corinthians 7 has to do with a, a man and his wife. How that they should in fact only abstain from those sexual favors when there's serious intent to give oneself to fasting and to prayer. You and I thus notice that here was even a New Testament circumstance. The city of Corinth, well into the era of, of what was New Testament times... And yet Paul made reference to the choice they might make in order to fast. Look at the next example of a congregational one. In Acts 14 verse 23, that was that scene in which Paul and Barnabas were involved in the first missionary journey. They had in fact first come through this given region. And as they had done so, we noticed that they planted congregations... However, two years later, when they passed through that same region again, they now appointed elders in them. And you'll notice it's in that context that there was fasting. As these congregations made that great and gigantic decision to appoint elders, they entered into fasting. You'll notice here was a time of great decision, a time of great moment, a time that had tremendous considerations for what the future eras of that church would be, and yet... They fasted. Beyond that example, in Acts 13 verse 3, one that we mentioned at least in passing a moment ago, there as that church in Antioch was making ready to send Paul and Barnabas out on that missionary journey, they fasted and prayed. As you can see, all of these examples perhaps challenge us to see that today, if you and I are facing great difficulties, great temptations, if we're on the precipice of a great decision or great moment, it wouldn't be inappropriate to devote some time to fasting so that we can clear our mind of what's so physical and mundane and focus our attention on truly what is the matter concerning fasting and prayer.
As you'll notice, yet another thing. It did seem rather interesting to me that in so many places, fasting and prayer are mentioned together. I thought I'd just list a several of the times in which the two are coupled. Some of them are in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 35, verse 13. Also in Daniel 9, verse 3. That one is somewhat unique in the sense that there it was the day of Daniel. Daniel, of course, by careful observation, knew that the time of the captivity was about over. And as they began to set out on the great character of return, people returning to Babylon, or rather returning to Jerusalem from Babylon, you'll notice that the great occasion of moving moment came over the prophet, and we notice he fasted and prayed. And not only that, he urged others besides himself to do the same. You'll notice in some New Testament examples, not only these two from Acts, but also in Mark the ninth chapter. As you and I know how powerful prayer is, again, it's a bit intriguing that fasting is mentioned frequently along with it. All of these, I suppose, have told us so far that just as surely as fasting is a noble and reasonable topic for discussion, what I suppose is left is how does one interpret fasting? How, do, how does one fast if he or she chooses to do so? That takes us back to this text in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus laid down some very careful regulations, didn't He? about ways in which a person should fast and ways in which a person should not fast. Those two will help us understand more thoroughly some of these previous points that we've already noted this evening. Note carefully the purpose for fasting, as Jesus Himself said, is not to be seen of men. It's rather clear from these New Testament passages, at least in the Gospel accounts, that one of the things that individuals of that day would do is they wanted, in some cases, for their religion to be well observed by others. It is in this very context, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warned three times, and we're all very familiar with the warnings. First, do not give your alms just to be seen of men. In parallel case today, we don't put our money in the plate. And do so in such a fashion, in a public way, just so everyone can notice how much we give and pat us on the back and express the compliments to us. That's not the way we give. And if so, Jesus said, you've got your reward. Secondly, in the chapter, He said, you do not pray just to be heard of men. And so when the gentlemen stand before us and lead prayers, they pray earnestly from the heart. And it's not their desire just to use eloquent $10 words just so that we all can be impressed with the language they use. Again, Jesus said, if that's the purpose you're praying, you've got your reward. You'll notice thirdly, in addition to prayer and in addition to giving, He said, don't do your fasting just so that others can observe what you're doing and heap praise upon you for that. Verse 16 says, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Wherefore, or verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Some thus in Jesus' day, just as the case was true for both giving and prayer, they wanted others to notice how spiritual they were, and they wanted others to notice how religious they were. 
Notice how often I fast, and so they would disfigure their face or at least make sure that others were aware that they were fasting. You'll notice they used a sad countenance. They looked a bit forlorn. They would make their appearance so that others could not mistake in the fact that they were fasting. As they disfigured their faces in verse number 16, they did this just to garner the attention of those about them. Today, thus it's the case, if you or I choose to fast, it's not to be a public spectacle. If we do so, may it be private. And may we do so with the earnest intent to draw closer unto God, to allow ourselves to be removed from the enticements of these physical matters of food for a while, and use that time to give ourselves over indeed to prayer and to fasting. You'll notice that Jesus said some other things as well. In verse number 17, But thou, when thou fastest, he said, Anoint thine head and wash thy face. In other words, you appear in public ways, perhaps like you would in, in other circumstances, and you don't seek to draw attention to yourself just because you're fasting. The reason for fasting is thus not this matter of drawing attention. It's perhaps wise at this point to notice from time to time, much in the religious world is done just to gather the attention of others, isn't it? You've seen in things on TV that happen in the name of religion, and it seems obvious that the way the man dresses, the way in which he does and says what he says, the way in which he delivers the lesson in many ways is for the purpose of gathering the attention not only of those present but also of the television audience. Sometimes you'll see them wear these clown-looking outfits. It's called a regalia. And sometimes we still have to wear them, at least in graduation exercises. But maybe you've seen preachers wear them. Why? You'll notice that Jesus said that in terms of striving to be spiritually oriented, it's not in the matter of drawing attention to yourself in terms of disfiguring your face, in terms of having a sad countenance. In verse number 18, he said that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. The beautiful teaching of fasting perhaps challenges each of us that we live in a world that is so given to the materialistic things about us. It might be a noble endeavor for you and me to choose a while and to choose to give ourselves over to study, to prayer, to other spiritually oriented things. In so doing, there would be nothing inappropriate about that. It is interesting, though, to observe that some might be of the impression that fasting can substitute for things. And therefore, I thought the very last two comments might be in order. Could a person choose to do whatever he or she wants, let's say during the week, and then come Saturday night into Sunday morning, choose to fast a while, and make everything okay with God? Does fasting substitute for obedience in any other way? Does fasting in some way allow one to make a substitution for obedience? There was a time in the Old Testament when some in Israel thought that that would happen. Let's reread Isaiah 58 just a moment and look at an interesting set of comments made on that occasion. In Isaiah 58, let's begin reading in verse 3. Keeping in mind about the existence of fasting in that ancient day, 
It says, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. This was a situation in which the children of Israel had involved themselves in fasting, but they were not finding God responding the way they hoped He would. Let's continue reading. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Notice that these people were given to wickedness, and they were given to violence, and given to smiting, and yet you think suddenly you're going to fast to me, and that'll make things well? Verse 5, Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? You'll notice that many of the humble aspects of fasting the people were overlooking completely. Verse 6, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. God had spoken about fastings, but He had wanted it to be a time to separate from wickedness, to separate from the things that caused one to be apart from God. And yet they were using these fasts as another way to engage in violence, wickedness, the other things that God had condemned. So in verse 7, Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine hell shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. Then shall thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. So the fastings of Israel on that occasion were very empty. They were misdirected. They failed to appreciate the great spiritual thrust and purpose of fasting. And so, in summary to that slide, fasting was no substitute for obedience. God still wanted their heart to be directed to Him exclusively, and fasting was just a way to assist them in that activity. Amazing, isn't it, to think about fasting in that regard? Perhaps in final matter to the lesson this evening. In conclusion, it seems as though we can at least safely say this. In our study of fasting, we have at least been able to see the following. It is something that a Christian should consider given how often it's mentioned in the New Testament. And not only that, it's something that is defined very carefully and occurs in a number of circumstances. Beyond that, we have seen reasons for fasting. They were all spiritual in orientation. Fasting that touched upon striving to draw closer, to draw nearer to God. As that fasting like that is considered, you'll notice its purpose also led Jesus to strongly state to those of His day that you don't fast just to be seen of others. 
rather fasting. In fact, should be done in such a way no one else even knows you fasted. Tonight, as we think about the whole purpose and the thought behind it, drawing closer and nearer to God. Adam has led us tonight in some songs, one of which was, Hold to God's unchanging hand. We do serve the greatest one of all, and in fact, we look forward to that day when we can be with Him forever. You'll notice here that the things of life often are such that we must lift our consideration above what is so often around us because it distracts us. It causes us to think about things that we would be better off not thinking much about. But yet the truth of the Scriptures helps us see that if a person were to choose to fast, that's, that's a fine thing, as long as it's done in agreement to the principles that we've studied tonight. Inasmuch as it is no substitute for obedience, may we at least offer the gospel call of invitation at this time. How do you and I stand at this moment in terms of our relationship unto God? Is there a great device, a great division between us? Is it such that sin is clouding you and me and we're far distance removed from Him? If that is the condition tonight, it may be as a result of two things. It may be you've never yet rendered initial obedience to the gospel call of invitation. How sweet it is to see that you and I are commanded to hear the Word of God, to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, to repent of our sins, to confess His name as the Son of God, and to be baptized. It never ceases to be a remarkable and overwhelming scene when you hear someone say, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Tonight, if there is someone in the audience in that position in life, please think urgently. Please think seriously. You need the sins of your life forgiven and only the blood of Christ can do it. If you have become a Christian and you have rejoiced and known what that involved and what that meant and you knew the happy life that came with it, but maybe even as we study this morning, happiness has given way to despair because sin has engulfed you again. In 2 Peter 2 verses 20 to 22, that state of affairs is described and may we be quick to say the latter end is worse than the beginning. If you're in that condition, why not beseech the prayers of all of us here tonight on your behalf for forgiveness? We'd be delighted to, in fact, pray for you and with you. If you, in fact, are in need of either of these things or just want prayers of strength, we'd be delighted to pray with you and we'd be happy to receive your request. While together we stand and while we sing.